What the If is brought to you by listeners like you, thanks to our Patreon members, patreon.com slash whattheif. Go there now and find out how you can become a member and get all kinds of cool rewards. And thank you for supporting our mission for science education and science fun. Welcome to What the If! Virus Hunter Edition. That was just a tease, a little tease of our if this week coming up in a moment. But first, let's bring in our our uh, fearless hosts. Uh, Gabby Panicia is here, as always, from Rockefeller University. How are you, Gabby? I am good. Excited about this one today. Yes. And you are fearless. You're doing some sort of some sort of martial arts dance thing. I'm I'm terrified of both martial arts and dance. And and a dance I can go all the way back to junior high and tell you I'm very terrified of dances. So uh you're doing both today. Oh, I'm equally terrified of dance. There's a samba oh. <laughs> workshop tomorrow as part of this, and I'm gonna be so, so, so bad. But so many people I know are very, very, very good at samba. So I am going to take a total, total fool of myself. It's going to be great. <laughs> but then you, you could then, you could then, uh, you could kick them in the face. That, well, I can't maybe really that's kick what you're afraid of. Because they're also really, they're much better than me at martial arts too. They're, right, they right. are parallel skill trees, I've found right. out. Yes, It'll be good yes. training for your thesis defense. Yeah. Yeah. I will be able to defend that thesis so well, hand mm-hmm. and fist. That's, that's what you're going. And for. because yeah. because you do capoeira, right? I just wanted to clarify that that uh, what I was talking about capoeira, which is a Brazilian dance and martial yeah, arts. Yeah, it's an Afro-Brazilian martial art that's disguised as a dance. Mm-hmm. Right on, right on, right on. And that other fearsome uh, voice you heard was uh, from Matthew. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm just terrified. Matthew Stanley. <laughs> Professor of the science uh, history of science at New York University. How are you, sir? Double black belt. Uh, I am fine. Yes, I'm. Um, but I should say that the parallel skill trees do not help me at all. Um, I am a terrible <laughs> dancer, um, and maybe I'm a terrible <laughs> martial artist too. So actually, maybe oh, no, more no, parallel. No, we'll no. find out. I'll let you know. No, no, you're a sensei. Can't be terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that is certainly no guarantee of actual skill. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Matt, would you like to uh, bring in our guests? our guest this week, our illustrious guest. Sure. Um, So we're very excited this week to have uh, Greg Morgan, who is a historian and philosopher of science um, across the river from us, uh, who has written a very cool new book um, uh, about, well, about curing cancer. Um, One of these great goals that we are always talking about, but somehow we never quite get to. Um, so today we're going to figure out uh, how to go about doing that. Greg, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, what's the name of your book? I want to get it right so people right. can find it. So it's called um, Cancer Virus Hunters. Okay. Um, and the subtitle is A History of Tumor Virology. Right. On. And I will put, uh, there'll be a link and a picture of the cover of the book and stuff like that on our uh, uh, on our show notes page and on our website. What whattheif.com is our website, by the way, to get all the information about today's episode and also our other episodes. Yeah, and Greg, you're joining us from, let's see, uh, uh, you are an associate professor specializing in the history of the philosophy of science, as Matt said, and you are at Stevens Institute of Technology right. just in New Jersey. Yes, in, in Hoboken. 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 Lovely Hoboken. 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 Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, High, uh, high on the bluffs or low on the bluffs? No, it's oh. high on the bluffs. High I think on the actually bluffs. the Stevens family used to own all of Hoboken, and so they put their house up on the bluffs, which is probably the best spot. Uh, uh, and then yeah. the university was uh, founded after that. Right. Yeah, yeah. I should say the, the Stevens has the most spectacular views of Manhattan that you will yeah. get anywhere, actually. Yeah. Um, so if you want to visit New York, you should actually visit Hoboken. Yeah, there's two, two brand new dorms, actually, which have got these amazing million-dollar views of Manhattan. Uh, so you uh, could be a, wow. a freshman studying engineering and, and yeah, wake up to this beautiful view. That's pretty cool. 
that's fantastic. Yes, and Hoboken is a lovely place. I must say, also, Manhattan has a lovely view of uh, Stevens Institute of Technology. When you look <laughs> straight across, you see the cliffs over there of the Palisades. Very beautiful. So, um, yeah, and the book, uh, again, repeating the title of the book, Cancer Virus Hunters, A History of Tumor Vi Virology from Johns Hopkins. Um, and so um, Greg is going to help us. Greg is going to take us back in time through... Uh, um, those of you who, who listen to the show know that uh, it's called What the If, and usually we ask fanciful scenarios, you know. Um, what the, what, Matt, you have a funny one. What if we, what if we had uh, no oh, feet? or uh, Yeah, what if humans had tails or six toes yeah. um, or if there was no gravity? Um, uh, but sometimes we, uh, we ground it a little bit more and do some time travel. Um, so what if we found ourselves 100 years ago um, trying to cure cancer? Um, what would we do? Um, who would be the people we would hang out with? What sort of options might we have for, for tackling it? Indeed. And so let me, I will now, with all the great fanfare, literal fanfare that we do, uh, when we welcome an if and we begin our journey, we ask, what the if? You wanted to cure cancer. A small goal. What would you do? And suppose you found yourself in the early 20th century. What would you do? And so, Greg, take us, take us to, uh, there's someone you had in mind uh, who's, who's, uh, whose mind perhaps we can, through, through our imagination, inhabit. What if we were this person? Um, and what was it that he saw or imagined that got him started on this, uh, this quest? Right, right. So the, the person I had in mind um, was was named uh, Peyton Rouse, and he was an American. He uh, grew up in Maryland, oh. and he was sort of fascinated by nature. In fact, as a kid, he used to write descriptions of uh, Maryland plants that would be published in the newspaper, uh, and he thought that observation was the key to understanding the world. So. Ooh. He ended up going to Johns Hopkins University and, and getting a medical right. degree. And he thought of himself as uh, an experimental pathologist, which isn't Ooh. really a term that's common these days, but he wanted to understand what causes disease and um, what, in fact, diseases were. Interesting. So, by the way, I just have to mention that Gabby and I are both excited. There was some hoops, who whoops and hollers. <laughs> Maryland represent. Uh, yeah, we are both from Maryland. Um, and uh, was he from Baltimore or did you know where? Oh, uh, he went to school in Baltimore. I think he was, right. um, at, on the edges somewhere where he could see pl more plants than in the city, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I could imagine. I imagine one of those plants, I know, so, I know nothing about botany, but I do know the state flower of Maryland, which is the black eyed Susan. So I'm guessing he studied at least this one plant. Is that, is that right, Gabby? Do you, do you know, you, you know, plants. I mean, the state flower is the black-eyed Susan. Yes. 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 Good. I'm glad we could confirm that. Now, Gabby, you, uh, Gabby, and Matt, you both uh, ex exclaimed with joy uh, and wonderment when Greg said "experimental pathologist." I think. That, what was that about? I I missed that. Well, Thrill. so experiments, if you say you're an experimental X, it usually means you, you go into the lab um, and do stuff with that thing. So if I'm an experimental physicist, um, I go into the lab and build lasers and shoot lasers at things. Um, but pathology... I think of as, as bodies not working right, right? That's diseases. Huh. So that suggests to me I go into the lab and give diseases to things, um, which I should say when I have tried to do that in the past is frowned upon. <laughs> I mean, technically that's what I do for a living, but yeah. if you're at the point where you don't really know what diseases are, this is an area where we don't know what viruses are. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty interesting niche to occupy where it's like, I guess we know disease is a thing. Disease is definitely a thing. We don't really know what causes it. I'm going to try to give disease to things or experiment with disease to understand what it is, which is like a very cool thing. Also, in general, as a name, that sounds really fun. Yeah. Experimental <laughs> pathologist. Because most of the time when I guess I interact with pathology, it's very much at the end of the road. It's uh, the end uh, dissection of what happened here. Um, sort of the end readout as opposed to experimental, which makes me think more of the process. 
So I think this is like an interesting juxtaposition there in just the title alone. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Pretty cool. Indeed. So go, go ahead, Greg. Yeah, yeah so, so Rouse was offered a job at um, what's now called Rockefeller University, but it was oh. called ah. Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research uh, back in the day. And that's where Gabby is now. Yeah. yeah. Same, same place. There is a gigantic yeah. oil painting of Peyton Rouse in the entry hall of the building that I work in. Uh-huh. I pass his face every uh-huh. single day. And he's the reason why I got into the field that I did is the story uh-huh. of his research. So like I said, I'm really passionate about this. Oh, Greg. So I'm exciting. very excited to talk to you today. It's going to be fun. Awesome. Yeah. And he, he was con- like talked into dealing with what they called the tumor problem, like which we would call the problem of cancer. And a lot of his advisors actually said, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> it's too difficult. It's probably, you know, terrible for your career because you won't be able to find out anything. It's, it's wow. too complicated. Um, and perhaps cancer doesn't really have a cause even, right? Um, some, wow. some people thought that. Wow. Um, but he got lucky because one day um, a hen breeder brought him in a hen or a chicken, right, um, that had a big tumor in its breast mm. and said, well, you know, this might be useful to you. Can you tell me what's going on? So he he took this tumor and he did what a lot of people were doing at the time, which was to cut a little, cut it up into little pieces and then put it into other chickens um, and see if he could, ah. could, could propagate it. So you could take a tumor and take it from one organism and put it in another organism. And in fact, that's what happened, that the tumor was able to be transplanted mm. um, to other chickens. That's amazing. So that suggests that, were I a scientist doing that experiment, that cancer is contagious in some way, right? Right. Yeah, ah, that it's wow. kind of self-perpetuating, or at least some of them are. Um, yeah. It doesn't yeah. work for all, but only some tumors. I, sh- <laughs> I should say that's very rare. That is really uncommon in just cancer biology in general, that you could put cancer from one organism into another and have it be and have it graft like that. There's only uh, some cancers that do this, whether it be it viral or actual, just like regular tumor. So for example, there's like a Tasmanian devil, like face cancer that spreads, but it's literally just cancer cells. They bite each other in the face and then it spreads. Wow. Um, so it, it's very, very rare. He stumbled across something that was like very interesting and very unusual. Wow. And Greg, just help us understand the time period here. So what's, uh, what are the, for instance, what are yeah. the car? What are the are there cars? What do the cars look like? Or are they still riding horses? And what's the state of, um, what is the sort of state of medicine um, at this right. point? If, so if this is, sick. yeah, this is nineteen oh nine, nineteen ten. There would be some cars, but like most people wouldn't be able to afford them. They'd be sort of pretty exotic. Uh, so they're mostly horses and carts and things. Yeah. Um, I guess you could have um, tramways and things like that, like in uh-huh. San Francisco, they'd be more common um, in other towns as well. Um, medicine, uh, well, we would think it's quite backward, right? No antibiotics. Um, there is a, a sort of an advance at the end of the 19th century with the germ theory of disease. So there are people now, the scientists trying to find microbes that cause disease. And so there's been some some progress and understanding what what causes disease cancer is completely mysterious um Mm. there's lots of different theories about what causes it whether it's environmental or it's sort of bad luck or um Mm. yeah eating the wrong foods or you're in the wrong part of the country right um um, so yeah there's not very much known at all about cancer um this is also sort of the radical surgery area of cancer, era of cancer treatment, right? Where like most of their methodology is just cut out literally everything you can that's around the cancer uh-huh. and hope and pray that your patient also doesn't die of an infection, et cetera, at the same time, right? Like, wow. Yeah. yeah. It's scary times, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. what it, in his mind as he's looking at this, what is it that drives him forward? Like what... Uh, what question does he ask or how, how does he? Well, he, he, he's, he's, he's interesting because he is an experimentalist, like as Matt was talking about, that, uh, but he also seemed to have a lot of faith that you could work out things if you just observed things cl- closely enough. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. he really thought that nature, at one point he called it kind of a script to be decoded. Huh. And so he saw himself as uh, 
discovering these puzzles that no one else had seen yet, but wow. were, were open to analysis. And uh, yeah, um, he, this was actually an attitude he had throughout his whole life where he's, he was very particular about describing things in as much detail as you could and being super precise with your language. So oh, yeah, that's probably why he got the job, uh, you know, writing about flowers and, and plants and the ah. newspaper where you didn't have images and you basically had to do portray something by describing it interesting 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 so then yeah so what's the next step in his uh so, yeah so what, what would you do so you've got you've, you've got this um just tumor that you can propagate and you can keep it alive um what you really want to find out is is there uh can you decompose the tumor into something simpler and see if the the, the virus causing part of it is an only in one part of it so what he did was he ground up the tumor like so he hmm. he kind of got he ground it up into small pieces and then he filtered it. Wow. And so it took out a lot of the solid material and then you could see if it was the solid material or the liquid that goes through the filter that causes the cancer. Um, And it turns out, well, that surprisingly the liquid was able to propagate the cancer, which is kind of surprising. Wow. If you think cancer is a cellular disease, because you've hopefully filtered out all the all the all the cells, and you've got this was a sort of a slightly slightly yellow um, mm. liquid. Wow! And so he he did this, and he got better and better filters that filtered out more and more and more stuff until he got the finest filters he could get. These things called Birkfield filters, and the the liquid still caused cancer. Wow! And yeah, and then you could you could make more of it because you'd grow a new cancer in a new animal, and you'd do the same procedure, and you'd take out the tumor and grind it up and filter it, yeah. and get this liquid that you could inject into another chicken and get it again. What I think is really interesting about this thing too is this is before we knew what viruses were. He just wrote about it as there's this filterable agent. There's something that's smaller than a bacteria because you can get filters at this time. They knew you know they knew what bacteria were, so they could get filters that excluded bacteria right but they didn't really know that there was anything smaller than that at that point they were sort of very much in like the bacterial mindset of disease mm. so mm. i could imagine if you're peyton rouse you're like what the hell is this like what <laughs> yeah. is this liquid that i've got because it's not a bacteria it's not a cell it, it's it's just something else maybe like i guess a protein i don't know if that would have crossed his mind wow yeah i mean it was sort of an open question whether to call it biological or to call it chemical and um, he wasn't sure which way to go. Interesting. Um, and I guess viruses are actually a bit like that too, where they're, yeah. they're, they're kind of biological in one way, but um, right. later on actually we were able to crystallize viruses, which makes them seem like they're a chemical. Um, right, mm-hmm. right, right. Yeah, so he, so is, is he, I'm just curious, is there, because uh, in other episodes, Gabby has talked about the 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 hazmat gear that she wears for biosafety bio wear when he when they're doing this work is he afraid of getting the cancer as he's doing all this filtration what what does any any protections he that's a good question takes? i don't know i don't know actually i mean all the photographs of him at the time have him just with no protection on at all that yeah. i've seen pretty much um in front of his microscope and um so yeah, they definitely didn't have the big hazmat gear that someone that and one of those virus labs would wear today that you think of that that didn't exist. Um, right. But I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I would assume they use gloves and um, maybe some face guards and things. But I, I'm not completely sure actually. Do you yeah. know, Gabby? A lot of the I, I don't know specific protections, but I know that in general the field of lab safety suffered a lot in the past. <laughs> uh, there would be people openly smoking in labs, especially wow. virus labs, were no different. Um, so chances are this guy was just maybe just in gloves and a lab coat. Lab coats tended to be more common, if only for a sort of status thing. Now everybody's just <laughs> in jeans and a t-shirt, and it's kind of relaxed. But I think the role of scientists was viewed as more professional. Therefore, the lab coat was also sort of like a like a job thing mm-hmm. as much as it was a protection thing. Yeah. Um, actually, technically speaking, we should be wearing lab coats at all times. Hopefully nobody from OHS is listening to this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it probably was a little bit less. Um, there was probably were fewer precautions. But like, I, I, I'm curious about how much of, because this is something that I actually don't know about the time. 
how much they thought they would have been cross-organism contagious, especially given that they, they had so much trouble getting tumors to grow. And I'm assuming they were also trying to get human tumors to grow into mice. So I really wonder how much he would have been worried about a chicken tumor growing in a person, even though this was one that seemed to be able to grow from uh, organism to organism. So Interesting. Interesting. And it had to be implanted, so it wasn't like by just getting it on his skin he was going to get it. Right. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Actually, the interesting thing was it became slightly more contagious the longer you kept it. So the more oh. transmissions it went through various animals, it would actually start infecting more easily. So uh -huh. it looked like it was changing over time somehow. Wow. Which is a little mysterious too. Wow. So how far does he get? What's, so he, what's... He, he gets interrupted actually by World War One. Mm. So, um, a lot of people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, I guess that he started working on other things like how to store blood, which would have been a really useful thing to know in um, World War One, so he could treat all the wounded soldiers. Mm -hmm. So he didn't get much further than showing that it, it could be, you know, what, what we've just described—that it was a, it was a, in this liquid. It was smaller than a bacteria, whatever right. it caused cancer, right. and you could keep it in a test tube for a while. Um, you could do other experiments too, like you could boil it and see what temperature would kill the, the cancer-causing agent. Uh -huh. But as Gabby said, he didn't want to call it a virus. He thought that was going beyond the data. He wanted to call it an agent. And um, it would be another 20 years before actually he got uh, he got free enough to start calling it an, an, a virus. Ah, interesting, interesting. And does he, does he win any... Uh accolades for his discoveries at this point in no, his lifetime well, he'd, he's seen as sort of a great experimental scientist uh, uh -huh. but he do, he doesn't win anything at that time uh -huh. he however it's a really nice story because he won the nobel prize in 1966 for work that he did in 1909 and 1910 wow. so i think i think that's the biggest um distance in time between the work done and the prize being given but he was an old man by that point. He was, um, yeah, like sort of the elder statesman of biomedical science at that point. Uh, but it's a nice way to end your life, I guess, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. What I remember from my history of generally about this is, too, that once he got the Nobel, that sort of like energized the thought of like, well, maybe cancer is a virus thing, right? So Rouse getting the Nobel for Rouse sarcoma virus, RSV, kind of kicked off another generation of people who were like, okay, there must be viruses and other tumors. Yeah, I think that's that's partially right. I, th I would also say that to be awarded the the the, the prize uh, happened partly because people were getting more open to this idea. So I mm -hmm. think in the fifties right. is a crucial time, which I, 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 if it's okay with you, I'd like to talk about another person. Yes, um, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. We're, yes. we're gonna we're gonna hop in our time machine, but not only a time machine, but our our uh, personality transformation machine right. that allows us to go into another mind. So we're leaping forward to the 1950s. Is that correct? Yes, the 1950s. All right, take it um, away. So th there was a uh, a Polish American uh, biologist, uh, medically trained, called um, Ludwig Gross. Um, he uh, had fled Europe. Um, actually, he fled Europe in this in this amazing way. Well, amazing retrospectively. At the time, it must have been harrowing. But mm -hmm. he had taken a car and he was trying to escape Poland before the German troops arrived. Mm -hmm. um, and his car, unfortunately, ran out of gas. Oh. Uh, and so he's worried he's going to be captured. Um, but he managed to get to the border and get out and then um, get a visa to the United States, which was actually quite a difficult thing to do. But wow. he ended up in the United States, medically trained doctor, um, mm -hmm. and he had this um, theory that he thought all cancers were caused by viruses. And so this is a very uncommon view at this time. He was sort of seen as a heretic by a lot of people, huh. um, partly for reasons that we were getting at earlier. It doesn't look like cancer is contagious, right? Like if you have someone that's uh, got cancer, you're not going to catch it from them and oncologists and doctors don't seem to catch anything from their patients. Mm -hmm. So it was a really, un, it was a very unpopular view, but right. he, he, he wanted to try and prove that, uh, it could, it was possible. And where is he based? So he, he originally comes into New York, um, 
he ends up in Cincinnati. And then he um, signs up in, uh, for the military. So he joins the U.S. He joins the U.S. Army, mm. becomes a captain, wow. and he ends up at a veterans hospital in the Bronx. Mm. And he stays there all of his career after that. Interesting. I think yeah. I actually know that hospital in the Bronx. I, if there's only one, there's a VA hospital where I've I've done some filming before. So, yeah. Well, he he, he, he said it. Yep. He set up a little lab in the basement. Mm. He'd, he'd earlier, before he got his lab, actually, he he was he had a colony of mice that he was growing in coffee cans in the Whoa, trunk oh my God. in the trunk of his car. <laughs> oh my God! And um, this was a story that a lot of people told to sort of show that he was so devoted to trying to show something that he would let not, he didn't need a lab. The lack of lab stop him. He didn't need the mm -hmm. lack of funds. So he. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's here. He's doing experiments on mice, um, and what he what he what he worked out, and what had people had been studying mice, uh, inbred lines of mice, so that they were bred brothers and sisters sort of breed together, and you get brother and sister mice breed together, and you get these very uh, these very genetically pure mm. mice. Mm. And it's very, some of very the, uh, Game of Thrones. I just have to say, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so some some of these are quite you know resist cancer like normal mice, and then others have a tendency to get cancer more more frequently. Uh, so he was interested in taking one type of mouse line that was resistant, and 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 another that tended to get leukemia, um, and see what he could do with them. So, following the tradition of Peyton Rouse, he took took mice that got cancer and ground up their organs. Um, and then injected them into healthy mice and see and to see what would happen and to wow. see if he could get something that would cause cancer. And for a long time, he had no no good results. He couldn't seem to show mm. that he could he could transfer a cancer causing virus from one mouse to another. And I'm just curious how how long a period is that where he has no results? Because I always find in in the story in the histories history of science, this is one of the most incredible things. It's often hard to convey. It's it's one of the most impressive things. It's yet it's one of the hardest things to convey to people because when we tell the stories in retrospect, we often say, you know, like, well, Einstein discovered this and this, and you know, you don't uh, unless you read one, let's say one of Matt Stanley's great books about Einstein, you don't get the long tortuous road. So, like, how long did did uh, he go without? Yeah, well, success? Uh, quite a long time, years, years. I mean, mm. he he was he he was interrupted by World War Two, right? So he, he, oh. when he was at uh, in camp, these he, wars, they he he, he lost a lot of his mice. His he lost his colony of mice when he had to do military service. He actually wrote to um, his superiors trying to get transferred and didn't wasn't able to. Wow. Um, but then, yeah, after the war ended, and um, he you know reestablished a colony of mice. And uh, so that was in the mid forties and he didn't really get results until the early fifties. So there's mm. a number of years um, wow. where, mm. yeah, he wasn't really getting anything significant. Yeah. And then, and then is it like one day he goes in the lab and he sees something different or? What well, happened? one day he was attending a lecture from a virologist who said that, who made an offhand comment that kind of sparked, a, sparked his, uh, research program into action huh. and it was that if you inject mice when they're just born their their immune i guess their immune systems aren't fully developed so they'll tend to be infected by a virus in a way that a, 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 an older mice might not like mm. a, a, a mouse that's say a few okay. days old will have a different immune system than one that's just born this holds true now, even where like there's certain age groups of mice that you infect preferentially for certain viruses. So for example, West Nile, you have to infect mice younger rather than older mm. because West Nile is not particularly good at infecting mice. So if you want to use them to study it, you have to infect younger mice. Um, okay. So yeah, that holds even today that you only do some experiments in certain age groups of yeah. mice. I find it fascinating for instance, what the, therefore what, what one of the things that was happening was for years, for year upon year upon year upon year, he's infecting mice, he's studying them. And, and yet, as, as they say, at, uh, uh, as the 
is it Glenda the Good Witch says at the end of The Wizard of Oz? You know, the answer, essentially the answer was right in front of you. If he'd simply been injecting the mice just a little bit earlier, he might have had a breakthrough. So then what was that breakthrough? What happened? Yeah, so he, actually before the lecture even ended and he heard this ah. piece of information, <laughs> he, he, he ran off to his, his lab and wow. he it had a litter of mice had just been born, so he had something to work with and wow. he injected them and lo and behold, um, a good percentage of them developed wow. um, cancer. Um, yeah, and so he, he was very happy. He's very happy. He wrote this up and he, he got it published. Um but people were skeptical uh, that mm. this didn't this didn't convince people right away. Um, and what 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 was uh, uh, what was the meaning of that? What was this breakthrough or that he? The breakthrough saw? is that if you take, um, I think it was lymph nodes and and the spleen of of, of a mouse that um, has cancer, that you, you can um, transfer something. He thought it was a virus oh. into a healthy mouse and fairly reliably cause cancer. Leuke What's le funny, leukemia and and the mice. Um, what I will say is interesting about just like lymph nodes and spleen in general is they tend to be places that you pick out a lot in cancer because they will sort of catch cancerous cells. Mm. Um, you'll see cancer cells in the lymph node and the spleen. Spleens, we you often get like splenomegaly, like a bigger spleen if something is wrong. Um, so he wound up looking at exact. I mean, now of course in retrospect if somebody's taking all of the knowledge of the 21st century, that's where they look. Um, but it is interesting if, you know, in this very meticulous dissection, yeah, he stumbled across these two organs that tend to catch and filter, th well, not actively filter, but sort of are receive yeah. that catches things. And um, he, he had a tool that Peyton Rouse didn't, so he could get a stage further, right? So the tool that he had that had been developed um, between Peyton Rouse in 1910 and now in 1950s, was the ultra centrifuge. So it was a tool where you spin something very, very fast and the denser material will sort of go to the bottom of a tube and the lighter material will stay at the top. And and that's a way of like what they say, fractionate the, the stuff that you're using. So put it into uh -huh. different categories. And then you can look at all the different bands of density and see where is it that um, the cancer causing stuff actually is, how dense is it? Mm. And um, one thing that this allowed him to see actually was that there was two viruses that caused cancer um, that had Ooh. slightly different densities and um, slightly different uh, temperatures where they were inactivated. One was one caused leukemia and another one, which was more important in the history of virology, it was later called polyoma virus. Mm. And that caused all sorts of different cancers and mm. different organ systems and, um, and that's why it was called polyoma for many, many um, cancers, right? Um, wow. And this one was a really important one in the history. Um, now he didn't, he didn't, he didn't get a lot of accolades straight away. People were still pretty reluctant to believe him. They were wondering if it experimental huh. artifacts or that you know, how, how is this this little known guy working in the basement of a veterans hospital going to overturn? The medical establishment so that it didn't happen straight away um it really only the tide only really turned when other people started to replicate and show yes exactly they could get exactly what he said and um and actually researchers at the nih in washington dc oh. um got interested in trying to learn more about cancer viruses right Right. Yeah. And that's how science, I mean, in a way, I, I always I always feel bad for the heroes of these stories who go through, the, you know, they have these incredible discoveries and yeah. then no one believes them. And yet, on the other hand, that's proper science, right? I mean. Right. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, I think it, people, I mean, outsiders don't realize how much science is sort of a community um, activity where you need, it's very difficult to do things by yourself. If mm, you, you've mm. got to convince other people to, to build on what you've done or to replicate right. what you've done. Right. And, um, and gross was able to do that. I think it was a testament to him. He got more and more people interested in this. Um, a lot of women, um, scientists for some reason were interested in it. So there's huh. at the beginning. There was quite a few women across the country who were looking at mice and uh, cancer in mice in the 1950s mm. and early sixties. Wow. 
Wow, that's interesting. Um, so I want to make sure we have time for our third uh, person here. And so and so we jump forward, and I think uh, you said it was into the 1970s we leap? Right. Is that yes. correct? Yes, so if we get in our right. time machine and we're in the 1970s. We're um, wearing bell bottoms and... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're actually in San Francisco. Oh, the, fantastic. Oh, wow, so, uh, yeah, If you had still, to go somewhere in the 70s, you would go to San Francisco. Yeah, the hippies are still around, right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's sort of uh, on the West Coast, which is uh, a bit more freer, I guess, than the uptight East Coast yeah. establishment. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and actually at this point, we, we, we are no longer looking at single scientists. You really need a team of scientists to get much mm, done. Mm, and so... Mm. There's three people that um, were important. Uh, uh, Harold Varmus, uh, Michael Bishop, and Dominic Stalin. And the third one was a French scientist, and he was visiting uh, Varmus and Bishop, who had a lab at UCSF, at University of Calif California, San Francisco. Mm. And they were interested in, it was a virology lab, and they were interested in Rouse sarcoma virus, the same virus that, that Rouse had discovered in 1909, and wow. still working on it. Still trying to work out what, at this point, we're getting sort of zoomed in on the virus. We kind of know what it looks like. Uh, there's electron microscopy, so you can see viruses. Um, and then the question is, what part of the virus is it that causes cancer? Mm. And we knew that it was in the nucleic acid. So it was either the, some viruses have DNA, some viruses have RNA. Um, uh, Rouse sarcoma virus has RNA. Um, as its genome. And so the question is, what part of the RNA, could we identify which part of the of the DNA of the virus caused cancer? And that was their goal, uh, or one of their goals. And so the question was, how do you, how do you, how do you work that out? Um, well, it turns out that, that if you have mutant viruses that like, so you could have not just, it wasn't just one Rouse sarcoma virus now. There was a bunch of different strains that had slightly different properties. Oh. Um, and you could actually mutate them yourselves. You could radiate them and, and um, change their DNA a little bit to s sort of speed up the evolution of viruses. <laughs> um, and some viruses could cause cancer and some didn't. So now you've got you've got to work out what the difference is between the two virus strains is, and that would be the cancer-causing part of the virus. Mm. Um, so from there, it became pretty easy to narrow down, right? Well, air quotes, pretty easy at the time. I think they had to sequence everything by hand. Um, but to figure out, okay, this is the part that's mutated, because I think RSV only has like four genes. So this is the part that's mutated, and all of a sudden when this part is mutated, um, there's no ability to cause cancer, right? You're right. So the, the virus that, um, so it turns out that the virus that is able to cause cancer has an extra gene that the other one doesn't have. Um, and um, the, what, what these three uh, people did, Stalin, um, Varmus and Bishop, uh, was to make a little piece of radioactive, a little piece of radioactive, um, DNA that they could use as a probe. Ah, oh, cool. And that, that piece of DNA stuck to the, the cancer-causing gene. And, yeah, they were, as you said, Gabby, they were able to identify what part, what part of the virus had it. This was, they, they weren't sequencing very much in the early 70s, so they were still um, doing crosses between different mutant viruses and trying to infer things. It was very hard work that took years to, to work out but eventually they, they made this probe this was the biggest thing that happened this probe that they could use to then see if this gene existed in viruses or anywhere else and they had this amazing discovery which was when they used the probe on on healthy cells it said there's a gene that's that gene that they think causes cancer seems like it's in healthy healthy cells of other birds um I think in that paper, it's kind of neat because, I, I mean, it's been a couple of years since I read it, um, but I read it like my first year of grad school. There's a whole list of birds that they tested and they got, you know, cell uh, lysate from or whatever that they used their probe against. So it's like everything from like chicken, duck, 
I think they have an ostrich yeah. in there <laughs> in that paper. They had a, I think I think the, it was the baby ostrich that they got from a zoo, and then they had a problem because it was so cute that no one wanted to kill it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was San Francisco. Yeah, they didn't just take a punch biopsy. Like uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a question about which type of cells to use too, whether you use muscle or liver. Um, but. Um, yeah, so, so as you said, that they discovered that there was uh, these, these, this cancer-causing gene. It seemed like it was in all sorts of different healthy cells. Um, mm. And they had two hypotheses that they were trying to distinguish between. One was that somehow there's a virus stuck in our, our cells, like a cancer virus that's embedded itself in the genome of healthy cells. And that's what you're finding when you use the probe. Mm. And that was, the, that was actually the default idea, that there was effectively viruses that have that have inserted themselves into our, into genomes of healthy cells and that's what you're discovering with the, the probe but because they could find it in all sorts of different birds including like um chickens and ostriches and um rears and yeah uh, it looked like that this gene had been in the bird tree of life for millions and millions of years so it was wow. maybe not a virus but actually part of the normal cell hmm. couldn't this probe also fish it out of human cells as yes well, it could, mouse? Is it, right yeah so, so it wasn't this just, gene that they oh go ahead go ahead no no yeah yeah you're exactly right go ahead you're fine yeah <laughs> i was gonna say that so they, they wound up calling this gene sark um as in like sarcoma but we just spell it src um and it's a major gene um of course we didn't really know that at the time but they were able to pull it out of basically every organism they looked at and they were like oh wait a minute that would be a very weird virus if it's across it's it's not just in the bird tree it's in humans it's in mice i guess the the, the blueprints for cancer live inside of us which is kind of a creepy thing right wow. if you're in this paradigm where you're thinking it must be a disease of like an external disease a virus uh, some infectious agent yeah yeah and i think it, there's a lot of uh, change between thinking that viruses comes from that the cause of cancer comes from the outside or it comes from the inside right, right, right. like is it an external agent that causes it or is it something that's gone wrong with your normal cells right, right. so the hypothesis that, that that sort of became clear as they did more research was that rouse sarcoma virus had picked up a gene from humans sometime in its history oh. i mean from chickens I'm sorry, from chickens. That's yes, a, yeah. sorry, misspoke. Yeah, <laughs> no, from, you're good. I just don't want to terrify our listeners. <laughs> no, no, from, from chickens. And then that 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 uh, gene had mutated to make it so it didn't work like it did in the cell normally. Wow. And then when when it got back into uh, healthy cells with this abnormal gene, it could cause cancer. So it was a a, a gene that was really important, as Gabby points out. It's in practically every every animal cell. Um, but as long as it's functioning properly, it's, it's completely healthy and it doesn't hurt anyone. But if it gets mutated in the right way, it will cause cancer. And th yeah. that's what the, this, uh, Rouse sarcoma virus had now in its genome. And it was just sort of a passenger was being infected, uh, into new healthy cells wow. um, by these viruses, but it wasn't really a viral gene. Wow. Wow. And I'm guessing, uh, um, it did did it then also take a very long time for science to confirm uh their findings or um and and i'm getting are any of them still around today uh any of the the scientists oh yes um yeah, yeah th these three guys i was talking about are um they're still alive um, uh -huh. Um, Harold Varmus is across the street from me. Yeah. Oh. He, he, <laughs> oh, wow. He's in the neighborhood. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, if he's at work, then yes. Yeah. He's... <laughs> right on. Yeah. Right so on. The, these guys, they, they um, um, Varmus and Bishop got the Nobel Prize. Uh -huh. uh, uh -huh. Stalin did not. He was very upset about it and publicly complained that he'd been left off. Yeah. But because he was, he was a postdoc in the lab, and the lab was run by Bishop and Varmus. Often that's the way the Nobel Prizes go. It goes uh, to the advisor more than the students. The watch day. out, Gabby. Yeah, don't do any, it. means that as a grad student, I should, you know, put my hands up, sit back. Yeah. No, the Nobel Prize winds up being a lot of like a career award. 
sure, but something sure. cool had to fall out of that career in order to justify it. You're right. Like a lifetime achievement award too. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Stalin, um, he, he tried to argue that he wasn't just a postdoc. He had his own money from the French government. So he was kind huh? of in a, uh, he wasn't exactly a um, student under Obama's and, and Bishop. He, he had his PhD and he, he was an independent scientist at some respect, but he was doing a project that they conceived of that they, they thought up how to do this experiment. Right. right. Um, yeah. So that was, there's a lot of animosity between the French and the Americans um, oh. over this. The, the French press tended to think that Stalin had been wronged, mm, um, mm, mm. but the Nobel prize uh, committee don't ever change their minds. So right, right, <laughs> right. once it's well, announced, it's that there's no uh, appeal or anything like that. So, right. And I'll give a shout out to one of our uh, one of our uh, occasional guests, uh, Brian Keating, who's written the book uh, "Losing the Nobel Prize," all about the uh, <laughs> a lot of the controversies around the Nobel prizes. Yeah. Um, so, so, Greg, what's a, 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 a as we wrap up now? What's a, a what's what's your sort of final uh, what final takeaway or what, what's something that moves you the most after having studied this entire history? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of takeaways, I think, from the history. Um, like an easy one is that war makes a big difference to how science ah. progresses because uh, World War I interfered with Peyton Rouse's uh, investigation. Yeah. Uh, World War II um, got, uh, uh, you know, had the consequence that um, Ludwig Gross came to America and did his work. And then even um, um, scientists during the Vietnam War a lot of very, uh, like Varmus, for example, who's a very, very smart physician, mm -hmm. uh, joined what was called the Yellow Berets, which was the United States Public Health Service, and it counted as military service, so you wouldn't be sent to Vietnam. Oh. And there was a number mm -hmm. of very smart physicians who became research scientists because of the Vietnam War, in effect. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one lesson that that... that that we can't disentangle the history of science from the other historical events going on. Right. For sure. Um, if you're looking more internal to science, I think that this is a really nice story about the successes of reductionism. The idea that we can get more and more precise and smaller and smaller scales about what's actually happening and the mechanisms of, of cancer. So now we know that cancer, right, is a disease where of mutated control genes like SARC, like that's sort of what's come out of that. Um, and so at least the story, the, the simplified story that we've got so far is that reductionism is the way to go, right? That mm -hmm. you're going to get successes in science by be, be looking at smaller and smaller scales and trying to get finer and finer grained mechanisms. Yes. Yeah. And there's probably some instrumentalism in there too, right? So, you know, with when they only had filter paper, they got certain kinds of, they could do certain kinds of work. And then when they had the microcentrifuges, they could do certain kinds of work. But then when they had the electron microscope, they could actually see those, uh, right. those deeper structures, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially because not all, there are tumor viruses that cause cancer, but they don't have the oncogenes in them. So, this is why it's a little bit more complicated, right? That, that a lot of cancer has got a simple explanation, perhaps. You've got a few really important genes that are mutated. But uh, as we now know with all the sequencing, that, that there's a lot of genes that are often mutated in cancers, like hundreds of them sometimes. Wow. Um, wow. So it's a simple explanation that, that explains a lot of cancer, but maybe not all of it. Mm -hmm. So the reductionism isn't really complete. Uh, right. Right. Gabby, how about you? What's what's your biggest, what moves you the most when you hear this story? I think it's a really interesting story about, one, cancer biology, when you don't know what genes are, is very difficult because fundamentally it's a disorder of genes. You get mm. mutations in uh, things that drive cell proliferation. You get mutations of things that restrict cell proliferation. And then all of a sudden, boom uncontrolled cell growth. Um, but I think it's such an interesting intersection, right? That, you know, viruses have become tools in a lot of ways because they're easy ways to manipulate a cell environment. Um, and so you have, in a way, it's sort of driving this fight of what's really causing cancer only for, in the end, um, the virus 
sort of the leading hypothesis to actually become the tool to disprove itself, which I think is, <laughs> I don't know, it's, yeah, it's cool. very yeah. interesting. And it's what got, I mean, I will say, it, this whole thing is what got me into virology to begin with, because uh-huh. viruses are super weird. They have weird results uh, when you put them in a cell. And cancer was one that I had never heard of until I was hearing the story of Peyton Rouse. I was like, that's so cool. I have to work on this. And I did. That's what I did my undergrad working on. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Greg, thank you. First of all, Gabby and Matt, thank you for those thoughts. And Greg, thank you so much for coming on board and taking us on this incredible journey, which I know is only just a slice even of the full of all the different stories you tell um, in your book, which I encourage everyone to check out. Uh, the title, Cancer Virus Hunters, A History of Tumor Virology from Johns Hopkins Press. And again, I'll put a link to it in our show notes. So, uh, Greg Morgan, thank you. Thank you for taking yeah. us on this, on this, on these many ifs this week. Um, yeah, that was great. Thank uh, you very much. Where where can uh, people find you uh, for more information about you or your work? Um, well, if you go to the Stevens Institute of Technology webpage, I, there's a, I'm in the faculty in the College of Arts and Letters. Oh, um, right on. Right on. Uh, and Gabby and Matt, anything you'd like to plug? Anything exciting coming up? Um, no, school starts in a week. So um, if you're one of my students, get to work. Get <laughs> Get, finish, finish, uh, finish decorating your dorm. Yeah, right. and uh, get ready for Matt's class. That sounds fun. Uh, Gabby, anything you want to plug? No plugs. Maybe beyond the continual, get your vaccines, wash your hands, etc. Yes. I yes. don't make my job any more relevant. Please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm begging of you. Wonderful. All right, Matt. Would you lead us? Uh, oh, sorry. Before we close out, I just want to mention uh, thank you as always to all our Patreon members. Uh, if you don't know what Patreon is, check it out. Our it's our membership program. Um, P a t r e o n Patreon dot com slash what the if. Go there and you can find out uh, all the kinds of cool stuff you can get for becoming a member. There's many different levels. So uh, whatever fits your uh, your interest and your desire for joining, we have something for you. Um, there's no obligation to just go check it out, patreon.com slash what the if. We have all kinds of um, souvenirs and clothing you can have, um, as well as I think one of the most valuable things is bonus content. And in fact, we'll be having um, about another 10 minutes or so of uh, additional uh, discussion we're going to have with Greg and uh, Matt and Gabby for our members. So um, that's only available to members, bonus content. So check that out. So Matt, would you lead us in our, our closing ritual? And if you could explain to Greg what it is and also help our listeners understand what are we doing? What happens now? Well, what happens now is we, uh, uh, we take a moment to, to ponder what is uh, around the corner um, we've been inspired by the lecture we just heard, so we're rushing back to the lab <laughs> yeah, to throw open yeah. the door, only yeah. to discover that there is a horde of baby ostriches preventing <laughs> us from getting to our filter paper. Incredibly uh, cute baby ostriches. <laughs> and we have no choice but to scream out, What the Thank you all, baby ostriches and beyond, creatures of all kinds who are listening. We appreciate your listening, and uh, we will see you all next week. <laughs>